Hello and welcome to the Music Retailers Podcast. I'm your host, Donovan Bankhead, and together you and I are going to listen to and learn from some of my favorite instrumental music retailers, manufacturers, well, anyone else that I think would be interesting. My goal is to provide a podcast where you can learn something new in every episode. So let's dive in. Today's guest is Will Mason from Mason Music in Birmingham, Alabama. Mason Music has four locations in the area, more than 900 students in private lessons, over 45 teachers, and they also host camps for more than 200 students each summer and holds recitals for 250 students twice a year. Our conversation with Will today focuses mainly on leadership and culture, and trust me when I tell you this is something you will not want to miss. All right, let's take a listen. So you talked about uh, being, there's four ways to empower your team. And the first one's defining the win. Second's delegating authority. Third is choosing to trust. And the fourth is creating shared accountability. So let's talk about the first one, defining the win. Tell me kind of what that means and what that looks like with empowering your team. Yeah. So, you know, (laughs) the more you can make work feel like a game and that there's actually a way to win, Um, I think that's a great way to motivate your team and empower them as well. Uh, I mean, I think it's, first of all, it's, it's motivating because you have uh, something shared that you're working towards. Um, just like any game, you know, like football, Mm -hmm. it's football season right now. And I'm sure in the great state of Alabama, there are more people watching football in this very moment than not. Um, (laughs) do they have uh, a, do they have a team there or something? I haven't heard. It's, uh, (laughs) yeah, there's, there are two yeah. <laughs> and you must, you must choose. Um, so, but you know, having that sense of, okay, we're working towards this milestone and when we get there, there's something good waiting for us, um, really gets people on the move and that's what you want. You want people taking action and making progress. Um, and in the sense of a business that, you know, is tied to financial success as well. So, Um, but the way that it empowers your team, because just having a goal doesn't necessarily empower them. That just motivates them to do their jobs, but it empowers your team when you allow them to take part in setting the goals. So, you know, I say that if you just, I don't think I came up with this, so I shouldn't say that, but I have read that if you just give somebody a goal, if you just hand it to them, then it's just a quota. It's not a goal. Mm-hmm. And that's a really big, big difference because uh, a quota is not very motivating. In fact, in a lot of ways, it's demotivating or it's stressful and people perform worse when they're under stress. And so um, having a goal that everybody, not everybody, but the people that you feel are appropriate participate in setting the goal really generates more buy-in. And when it gets down into the trenches and you're halfway through the quarter and you realize you're not on track, uh, somebody's going to step up to the plate and make a move because, you know, they're the ones who said, I believe we can do this at the beginning and they're not going to want to let themselves down because, you know, there's that, uh, higher degree of accountability. Yeah. So when you're setting those goals, so let's say for your, what, give me an example of a goal that you set in your business. Um, our average, our student load average. So how many students we have active, uh, and we look at that on a quarterly basis. So we have a goal for each studio for every quarter. For total active students yep. uh, in a lesson program. So tell me how that goal is set by location. Who, who's involved and what's the, what does the conversation look like? So we kind of do every year around October, November, we start having conversations about the next year's strategic plan. And so a part of that is 
the uh, goal setting for, and it's tied to our budget and there's kind of a lot of interweavings in just the business process that we have. Um, but those conversations, we look at the data from the last year and the year before, and we kind of see like what our trajectory is, what our trends are, um, historical performance, you know, milestones and markers. And then we also look at kind of the current state of affairs. We do a SWOT analysis, which is a great, just kind of simple framework for looking at your strengths and your weaknesses and your mm -hmm. opportunities and your threats. And we say, okay, well, we've got this teacher team right now. We're in a really good spot. And last year at this time, we had just lost two key teachers. And so I know we can do, you know, 15% better or 10% better. Um, or we can say, hey, you know, whatever the kind of current conditions for success are. Um, and, and then we set a goal. And we set that for the whole year. We look at, you know, quarterly goals. Um, but then as we get into the year and we get into Q2, Q3, obviously the situation on the ground changes. And so we hold those goals loosely. We can make adjustments as needed so that we aren't dealing with a, you know, nine month old goal that doesn't make sense with the current situation because things have changed mm -hmm. um, either for the better or for the worse, because we don't want to have a goal. That's like, man, that's so low. Like we're going to hit it anyway and we're not motivated by it. Right. Um, but we also don't want a goal that's so far out of reach now that X, Y, and Z have happened that it's just like, man, we might as well give up now. There's no way we're going to hit it. Right. So I think it's important to kind of assess those. And we, we use a couple of frameworks like smart goals. Um, and then there's actually also a hard goals uh, that goes through like heartfelt. Um, gosh, I'm not going to remember all these off the top of my head. Um, but uh, anyway, those are, and I know the R is required. It's a little bit different of a model, but um, typically those conversations involves the manager who's going to be the one primarily responsible for the goal. And we have an operations manager who oversees, you know, all four of the studios. And then um, sometimes I sit down on those conversations as well. Okay. Um, and, and I love that you, you talked about front, front end involvement yields back end commitment with those goals. So, yeah. and, and you'd also said that the, if you hand someone your goal, then it becomes their quota and you really want it to be where it's that person's goal. And listening to you talk about this, I, you know, thinking about with our retail stores, our store managers set their goals. They set their monthly and weekly sales goals. It used to be that I did it. It used to be that I set them and I ended then gave it to them. And you're right. It was totally like a quota for them. They didn't have a lot of ownership of it. And, uh, now that I've let them assign it, there's times they make mistakes. There's times they set the goal goal too low or they set it too high, but it's their goal. And yeah. I'm, you know, listening to you talk about it, I wonder if there might even be value instead of them just, you know, setting it, uh, you know, in their office or whatever. But if they pull the data with their team and like can set that as a team, like, all right, guys, what do you, what do you think we should set our goal for for this week? Here's the numbers and see what they say, you know, and uh, that might be kind of fun because if it's the entire sales team that feels like it's their goal, then we may have even more luck in hitting that than if they just feel like they're hitting their manager's quota. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's definitely a, a challenge for us and an opportunity for us to improve as a team is um, we have a lot of engagement and involvement in our executive team and our management team and then the further away from those teams we get, the less kind of um, engagement we have with 
you know, the broader, and it just kind of gets a little bit um, diluted, I guess, the message and, and some of these principles, because frankly, it's, and this is an excuse and it's not a good one, but it's hard, (laughs) you know, it's hard to get everybody in the room. And we have, we have just a a big teacher team and a lot of them work at different studios and um, they're all independent contractors. And it's just a, a little bit of a different relationship, but I totally agree. And I think that each individual in the company should have their own goals and should be aware of at the minimum aware of the team goals, but also even better what you're describing is, you know, participates in, Hey, let's come together and talk about this. What do we think is realistic? What can we reach for? Because the whole point of a goal is to do something more than if you didn't have the goal, you know, like, yeah, you know, it's something to reach for that, you know, is going to encourage you to um, improve or increase what would otherwise be just regular productivity. You had shared a Bill Copeland uh, quote, uh, the trouble with not having a goal is that you can spend your life running up and down the field and never score. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think and that's I mean, totally true. <laughs> gosh, we've all worked at places like that too, where it's just work, you know, and there's no end zone. There's no finish line where you can feel like, Hey, we've reached something and now we can rest for a minute before we start again or, Hey, let's celebrate. I mean, it's just like endless. Yeah. And you've I'm guilty build of those, that. Yeah. Well, me too. We all are, but you got to kind of build those rhythms in, um, and define that because it's, it's all just something that you build and define. It's not anything that exists just on its own. It's a concept that we're creating. Yeah. I think it's, it's easier in sports because you have, you know, these defined competitive periods, you know, it's the hour that you have the game or whatever. And, and uh, you've got your practice times and you've got your downtime. So it's very easy. But when you're a retailer, like kind of every day is game time, Absolutely. <laughs> you know, and even yeah. if you finish like in our business, we're winding down our back to school rental season. And, you know, but the, the reality is we still have to like sell every day and we're still trying to book lessons and we're still trying to do all the things we do every day. So it's not like we can like it's not so easy to just like close it up and say, all right, well, let's go celebrate because we're finished. It's like, well, we can, but we're still open till eight o'clock and you know, yeah. <laughs> we have all these things that we're still doing. And uh, I suck at that. I mean, I've been <laughs> trying to get better at it the last few years. I, I think I've gotten better at it, but I've just gone from like horrible to just bad (laughs) incremental incremental improvement over time man (laughs) yeah at least it is some kind of improvement at least i'm aware of the problem before you know i think when i first started i definitely had the mindset of you know suck it up nancy like you know it's just it's just work and you're supposed this is you're doing your job and like that's a terrible kind of person to work for. <laughs> Nobody wants to do that. You know? Well, and it, it doesn't work anymore. I mean, millennials, you know, there's been, I think we're finally like not using that term as, you know, derogatory, but um, people want there to be meaning and enjoyment in their work now. And that's not something that, you know, from my reading, and I could be totally wrong, but in the fifties and sixties and seventies and eighties, it wasn't so much about passion at work. It was just, Hey, earn a living and work so you can come home and have your life. And whatever you do, like that doesn't really matter as much. It's just do something and then, you know, live your life the rest of your, your time. But we spend more time at work than we spend at home. So I think people are finally waking up and realizing like, I better do something that I love. Mm-hmm. And um, part of our job as leaders is to, to design the game, design what, what are the rules and, and what, 
how do we kind of say this is the quarter, this is the half, this is the, you know, the whole game for each year, each season, whatever it may be. And um, sometimes it's completely arbitrary. I mean, ours is just, you know, fiscal quarters, which really doesn't line up with anything. You know, I mean, we have the end of Q2 and the beginning of Q3 is in the middle of summer. It's like, that's right. Doesn't really follow a business cycle, but it does help us just close the books on that period of time and reopen them on the next one. And yeah, you'd probably of- be better off to run your business into like, you know, into thirds instead of yeah. having quarters, running it into like almost like semesters or something, you know, yeah. and you, you're measuring it after your summer period or after the winter period and after the spring period. And, you know, that would probably make more sense for even, even for our, cause our business is much the same. You know, we've got the whole, you know, last half of the year is great for us because it's, you know, back to school rental season and then holiday sales season. So those last, four or five months are the strongest. And then, you know, the first part of the year is okay. It's not a bad time of year. It's usually pretty good for lessons and even some sales, but then you get into the summer and it's just, it's kind of a dog fight just to try to maintain everything. (laughs) And you're right. It doesn't really line up by quarters very well. (laughs) No, it doesn't. And, And so, I mean, we have a lot of different, um, like seasonal pushes that we ha- we have different goals for. Like we have recitals twice a year. And so we always set a goal for that. And, you know, we have a, a dashboard where we kind of share that progress with our team and show everybody where they are. Like, here's how many students you have registered. Um, here's our goal. Like just a reminder, make sure you're talking to your students. So that's something that happens twice a year that has nothing to do with, you know, quarters or anything. It's more seasonal and, and more, um, like semester, like you're describing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, sometimes we'll just set a goal just to have something to kind of focus on and, and promote a particular item like selling, Hey, we're going to have this month. Let's see how many of this particular, uh, you know, we got a new guitar in stock and let's see if we can sell one by this date or whatever it may be. Right. Yeah. That kind of goes in line with what you're talking about. Like you had shared also that, breaking up big goals into smaller first down goals, you know, smaller goals to, so that it it takes, you know, the combination of those smaller goals, you know, equals the, the big goal. So hit a certain number of first downs. Next thing you know, you're either kicking a field goal or scoring a touchdown and, uh, but breaking, breaking them up into bite size goals. And that can be tricky too. Like for me, I tend to be a little bit, I'm a better big picture thinker. Mm-hmm. Um, I know where I want to end up. I know how I want things to look in general, but the specifics of how to get there, I really struggle with. Uh, and so fortunately with me, I've got several people around me that are good at, at the details. And mm-hmm. so I usually tell them, all right, guys, this is where I want us to be. Tell me how you think we get there. <laughs> what does it look like getting there? What are the individual steps to be here? And I can help with some of that type of stuff, but I really do rely on other people uh, because, you know, like I said, breaking down into the minutia of those individual first down goals, not my strength. <laughs> yeah, but what a great question to ask your team. Like, how do you guys think we can get there? I mean, that's when you talk about empowering, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, and that's the key. I mean, that's the whole secret, I think, for everything we're trying to do is getting our teams motivated to, to you know, be a part of what we're doing and to kind of have that ownership mindset. And once you've done that, you've broken down those those first downs, and those goals, and it's celebrating uh, those those victories with your team regularly and planning for those celebrations is so important. So what are some things that you do 
or that you recommend that uh, uh, people celebrate, ways that they can celebrate with their teens? Man, this is one that I really suck at. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. Um, I have a list. I have a list of things that seem good. And, and, you know, we all have to hire people around us that have strengths that are different than our own. Otherwise, you know, it's a very lopsided and kind of, you know, uh, unbalanced organization. But, um, you know, we have done things in the past where, uh, you know, with some different levels of success, like taking the team out for, drinks or taking the team to a baseball game or uh, we went bowling one time. And it's funny because the more I plan something, the less fun it gets. (laughs) And so I need to be just not involved in that at all because I'm, I'm just not great at like planning fun. Um, (laughs) And uh, so, you know, I've tried to delegate that as much as possible. Um, But one of the, one of the ones that I remember that I think, and I tend to also get discouraged if everybody doesn't show up. You know, I'm like, yeah, man, I put in all this time and planning and like 12 people showed up out of a 60 person organization. It's like, gosh, you know, does that, and I take it personally, like nobody likes me, nobody wants to be hanging out. <laughs> and, um, but I'll tell you this, the smallest, the smaller the group, the better the experience tends to be. And the two that stand out to me, we did uh, a bowling one night for a studio that uh, hit their quarterly goal. Um, and it was so fun. Like we just had, a, I don't know, it was probably like six or seven people there. And, you know, it was like cosmic bowling night. So they turned all the lights off and everything was in black lights and we made up funny names and it was just so much fun. And these are people that work together all the time, but don't spend a whole lot of time outside of work together and to see them just encouraging each other and building friendships outside of work was really, um, it was really great. And then the other one that stands out was, we had a studio that crossed the 200 student threshold. And so we took that team out for drinks at uh, at a local bar and it was just awesome. And it was cool because we sat around the table and I just, as much as possible when I'm in those situations, I try to just like, and I am like this as a leader, I do not walk into a room and like, I'm not wearing the CEO hat. Like everybody bow down and like, Oh, Will's here. Like this, as much as possible, I don't want that to change the temperature of the room. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just kind of a fly on the wall. I'm in the conversation, but I'm not, you know, I'm just equal with everybody there. And to hear them without prompting, without anybody asking, and I didn't, you know, maybe I asked a question, but um, they started just sharing about like what it's meant to them to to work at this company and to have the experience with their students that they have and the connections that they've made. And um, that was really cool to just kind of like observe um, as impartially as possible, but just to be able to kind of take that in was great. And it meant a lot. Like those, those people that still work for us that have been, you know, that were there that night still talk about, you know, that particular night. So. Yeah. You don't have to have everyone there in order for it to make a difference in your, your team and in your culture. Yeah, absolutely. And the people who do show up um, typically are the ones who are the most bought into your culture and are your culture ambassadors. And those who stand a little bit further back and are a little bit distant, um, they see that and it starts to become more attractive to them. And over time, you know, if they're just not a fit, then they're not a fit and they move on um, out of the organization. But if they are a fit and they're just a little bit, you know, hesitant or distant for other reasons, they see that and they are attracted to it and they get closer. Yeah. So we spent quite a bit of time talking about, you know, how to define the win. Let's talk a little bit about delegating authority. What What's some of your tips and, and go-to advice when it comes to delegating authority? 
Well, I think uh, a first step that I'm always shocked when I talk to friends of mine who work uh, other places and we'll be talking about, you know, frustration they have with their boss or with their work or a coworker. And we'll get into the conversation at some point. I'll ask, well, like, is that in your job description that you would be doing that? And they're like, I don't have a job description. And I'm mm-hmm. like, what? what? Like, how do you not? I, and I don't, it's not out of a place of a judgment. It's just genuine, like disbelief. Like how can you function? How can you run an organization if nobody knows what position to play? Um, and it's not that they don't have any sort of idea of what they're supposed to be doing, but I think people really need to have role clarity and understand what is your unique role and your responsibilities and where do you stop and I start? Because that's where a lot of friction happens is when people are walking through somebody else's lane and, you know, making decisions that there are not, you know, supposed to be made by that person. And so um, I think it starts with that, you know, having a really clear understanding of here are the things that you're going to do and the things that you're going to decide, uh, the types of decisions you're going to make on your own. And what are the decisions that I want you coming to me and talking to me about before you make them? Um, and over time, you hope you see growth in your leaders that people are able to make the right call more often than not. And when they do make a mistake, that they own it and you know can reflect on it and learn from it and kind of explain like, hey, why wasn't that the right call? And what am I going to do differently next time? But I think the, the first step, if you're going to delegate authority, is be really clear on what that authority looks like and what it doesn't look like. And then it's really just a practice, a habit of um, not being the rescuing leader and not being the controlling leader. And just when people are new in the organization, they have a lot of questions, making sure that you're helping them answer their own questions and not just doing it for them. Um, But spending more time uh, just asking them questions and letting them kind of process and come to their conclusion and making sure that they're thinking the right way. Because a lot of it's just thought process. If somebody goes out and makes a mistake, you have no idea why they chose what they chose. You can make all sorts of assumptions, which is our tendency to kind of fill in the blanks, but, you know, staying curious and asking and saying, Hey, how did you, why did you decide to do that thing? And for them to trust you enough to tell you the answer that's true. Like, well, I I thought it was the right thing, but obviously it's not. And not to be afraid and to feel like they need to hide their motives because they're, you know, worried because their last boss chewed them out whenever they messed up. Um, so I think just being clear on the expectations up front and then also helping them work things out for themselves. And then a phrase that I love that I also stole from Craig Rochelle is you decide. So somebody comes and asks you a question and you know, it's something that they know the answer to, you know, Hey, you decide, what do you think? You know, and, and just mm-hmm. letting them go and, and take action at that point. Cool. Um, first things first, tell me a little bit about your business, um, when you started it and kind of your background in general. Yeah. Well, uh, the business is Mason Music. We're here in Birmingham, Alabama. And uh, officially, Mason Music began in April of 2012. Um, my ex wife and I started the company together. And uh, for several years before that, we had been just driving around teaching music lessons in people's homes or having students come to our house. And in 2012, we decided to kind of take that uh, leap of faith and sign a lease on a brick and mortar spot. And so that's kind of when it started, um, which is seven years ago. Kind of crazy. Interesting. And it started with when you had a brick and mortar in one location, but now you're up to how many locations? 
So we have four locations for uh, Mason Music where we do lessons. And uh, yeah, it's been kind of an interesting journey to get to that point from one, which was, you know, that was the leap of faith was, can we really do this? Is this really going to be feasible? Is this business model going to hold water? And um, pretty quickly we realized, yeah, definitely. And in fact, we're going to need some more space. That's awesome. So four locations, how far away are those locations from each other? Well, the first two are the closest and they're only about five miles apart, which seems crazy. But if you understand Birmingham um, and some of the geographical barriers, such as Highway 280, which has awful traffic, um, it's it's five minutes away or five miles away. But during peak rush hour, it's 20 minute drive. So people from one part of town are not necessarily willing to drive you know, the 20 minutes at five o'clock to get their kid to music lessons if there's one in their neighborhood. So we've kind of taken the approach of doing a smaller footprint and getting really nestled into the neighborhoods and into the communities where we can connect with schools and families. And, um, but each, I mean, there's the farthest one, I'd say the farthest distance between any two is maybe a 20, 20 miles. Gotcha. Okay. If that, if that, it's probably not even that far. Yeah. So you're basically kind of saturating Birmingham uh, with smaller stores that are essentially kind of focused into neighborhoods and things like that. Correct. Yeah, that's exactly right. What's the population of Birmingham? If you include um, kind of the metropolitan area, it's about a million people. Okay. Okay. And are there any other places that are doing kind of the same thing you're doing? Yes, there are two that are kind of um, a very similar business model. Uh, and then there's uh, a handful of ones that are primarily retail that, you know, also offer music lessons. And of course, you've got uh, a bunch of independent uh, music teachers and churches and small schools and that kind of thing as well. Right. And do you offer any retail? We do. Uh, retail is kind of a small uh, but growing part of our business. So, but it started out as just meeting the needs of our customers. So we could stop just sending them, you know, on a wild goose chase to find a guitar and they come back with something that, you know, they've either been undersold or oversold, you know, or bought some, you know, something kind of junky online and that isn't going to really help them meet their goals as a aspiring student musician. Right. Um, and so what percentage of your business now would you say is retail versus lesson revenue? Um, lesson revenue is, pretty consistently 84%, 83, 84. Uh, retail is hovering around five or 6%. Now the last thing that last, uh, or last time I saw one of your presentations at NAM, you had about 900 students and 45 teachers. Does that sound about right still, or has that number changed? Uh, it's pretty close. Yeah. We, uh, as anybody who is in kind of the music lesson business, we have the seasonal, um, cycles that we go through. And so spring and fall are when we kind of peak. And then we also, we have that valley during the summer months where uh, a lot of our students travel. And, um, you know, that's kind of the double-edged sword of serving families with disposable income is that they, uh, during the school years, uh, choose to spend that on music lessons. And then during the summer, a lot of times they choose to spend that on trips, which is great. Um, and uh, for those that stay in town, we have some really great summer camps as well. But you know, to answer your question, sorry, I got off there. I, uh, we're probably around 
um, 930 last week uh, students this fall. So we're hoping to continue to grow that number. And um, our goal this, uh, the end of this year is to hit a thousand. So that's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. Now, have you seen in the last, you know, year or two, have you seen, seen any change in like uh, growth rates or, cause it seems like in our business, it's been harder the last couple of years to grow the lesson programs. Whereas before I think it was much simpler um, and I don't know if it's because, I mean, I know in some areas we have increased competition and stuff like that, but our lesson enrollment numbers have been kind of stagnant. What have you seen in your business over the last few years? Uh, it's interesting. We, you know, with four different locations, each one kind of is his own little microcosm and, uh, we are very data driven business. And so we take, uh, measurements every week. We have a weekly report that our managers fill out and that just gives us these points of data that we can go back and reference to kind of provide some context for the performance at any given time, um, putting that into the context of the history. So um, I would say, no, we haven't really seen a change. It's been steady growth. Um, and two of our newest studios have had obviously the most opportunity for growth. And we've been really happy to see that growth, uh, you know, happen. Um, you know, our newest studio is only, let's see, um, coming up on two years, uh, that it's been open. And, um, you know, I would say for us, the biggest factor in our growth is just our leadership in any particular studio, having a manager who is able to build and kind of keep a great team of teachers is what makes all the difference in the world. And so we can go back into our data and look at, okay, this is when we hired this manager and it took maybe six months for that to that change to take effect, but then we can absolutely measure like from A to B the effect and the impact that having the right person in the studio makes because we have great marketing and we look at our number of people calling our new leads and that's always consistent. So there's other factors that are making the change happen for us. And for us, that's great leaders who are hiring and, and keeping great teachers. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to, we'll come back and talk more about uh, leadership and stuff here in a minute. So you're mentioning, uh, you know, about some of the data about being data driven. And I think that's something that when I think of lesson studio businesses, I don't necessarily think of that being a, uh, a traditionally a data driven business. So what kind of data are you collecting and how is it being used? Yeah. Uh, from very early on, um, I just started asking questions. I'm very, I'm a very curious person and I always just kind of want to know things. And so, you know, I would ask a question like, gosh, I wonder how many students we have that go to that school and then realize, well, I have no way of finding that out. And then realizing, well, we could find that out if we started asking people that question when they sign up for lessons, we can just put that into our client list. And then, you know, over time, then we can actually go back and ask that question and get an answer. So that's kind of been driving what kind of data we collect. And it's nothing crazy or intense, but it's just, um, you know, for each studio, we know at any given time how many active students we have, um, how many new leads are contacting us over a given period of time, where those people are coming from. You know, are they word of mouth? Are they finding us online? Uh, are they seeing an ad? Are they getting a mailer in their uh, mailbox? Um, so that's an important kind of marketing metric, but we also get people's addresses so we can put them on a map and see, hey, where are these people coming from? And that kind of informs if we're looking at doing some research on a future location. Oh, we've got a lot of people coming from this side of town. 
maybe it makes sense to, you know, look into opening a store over there. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, so what, talk about your role in your business and kind of what your day to day looks like. Yeah, well, it's changed a lot over the last seven years. Um, when we first started, I was teaching full time. So I had, you know, 50 students a week and was teaching Monday through Friday, three to 9 p.m. pretty much. And uh, one of the big drivers for me and um, my ex-wife starting the company was, hey, we've got small kids and we're working at night. So <laughs> how is this going to work when they go to school? And, uh, you know, I kind of set a clock and realized, oh, I didn't set the clock. I, the clock was already ticking that I've got five years to figure something out to create value during the day so that I can be home with my family at night. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of one of the big, um, impetuses for, you know, getting this thing off the ground. And so over time, my role has shifted away from being a teacher, uh, to kind of the next phase was hiring teachers, you know? And so I spent a lot of time figuring out well, what do we look for in a teacher? What are the qualities? that, um, you know, have made me successful as a teacher that I can go identify in other people. And then it kind of moved into, all right, well now I need to hire a manager who can then go hire teachers. And so just building in the different layers of that organizational flowchart and just kind of one course at a time, I'm actually building a little masonry wall in my backyard for a fire pit right now. And it's kind of the same idea. You have to start with a good foundation and then you kind of can add on top of that. And so it was just that process over the last seven years. So now, um, you know, my role is the CEO and I have a team of executives. We have a marketing director and operations manager and a financial controller. And, um, you know, everybody kind of has their, their role that's been defined and kind of their area of focus. And for me, it's uh, primarily in leadership development with our staff and, creating and protecting our culture and a lot of that um, that gets played out in things like teaching or in communicating through staff newsletters or leading meetings one-on-ones but also uh, being kind of the scorekeeper for the company and setting goals and defining our vision and making sure that we're all rowing in the same direction yeah yeah so uh, tell me how would you describe the culture of your store or of your business yeah. Uh, well, culture is a big one for us and it's kind of a, uh, it's a hard thing to pin down. It seems very hard to define, um, to describe it. I would say, um, you know, everything has kind of two sides. You have the internal and the external. So for us internally, for people who work at Mason music for the staff, I would say that our culture is defined by a pursuit of excellence and of growth that we're always learning and, trying to get better at the things that we do, the tasks that we have on our plate. Um, I say it often that if we're going to be a teaching company, we have to be a learning company. And so we're driven by that um, hunger to figure out a better way to do it. Um, But we also are very, very much have each other's backs. So there's a community aspect to it as well. Uh, If somebody's down a player, somebody else is going to play out a position to kind of support and take care of their teammate. So I'd say those are, two of the defining things that we, we really um, take our job seriously that we try to do the best job we can and we take care of each other. And third, we really love our customer. And so from an external perspective, like for a customer interacting with us, if they were to explain like, what does the culture feel like? I hope that they would say 
that it's a fun place to be, uh, that there's just a kind of a hustle and a bustle and activity going on and it's, uh, inspiring and that we have a good team of people that take an interest in their kids and, um, making sure that we're investing in them and, um, teaching them a whole lot more than music along the way. Now, uh, you know, that culture you describe is probably a culture a lot of people would love to have, uh, but it's a tricky thing to get that and to maintain it. And you've talked before about, you know, uh, empowering your employees and like the illusion of control uh, mm. or even the three deadly sins of control. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, that uh, kind of inner dichotomy as a business owner or even manager between wanting to like control what's happening in your business versus empowering your people to operate and run and grow your business? Yeah, oh man, this has been a, a huge challenge for me. Um, you know, one of the hardest things to do is to watch somebody else make a mistake and let them make it. Mm -hmm. But that's how we learn. Um, and so, you know, there's a, there's a couple different types of leaders. There's the rescuing leader, and that's somebody who jumps in and fixes things. Uh, and that's a impulse that a lot of people have, especially when it's your business, because you don't want to let somebody else do something that's going to hurt your business. Uh, that's a very natural instinct. But when you jump in and rescue, you're kind of robbing your team from that growth opportunity because a lot of growth and a lot of learning happens through failure. And you have to be wise about what, you know, what kinds of mistakes you let people make and what kinds of failures. Obviously you don't want a catastrophic failure that puts you out of business. <laughs> Um, but within reason, letting people, you know, giving them some training wheels and giving them an area that, hey, this is this is your area to focus on. And within this defined parameter, I'm going to let you operate and make decisions. And, um, you know, you can check in with me and ask me for input before you decide if you're not sure, but I trust you. And, um, you know, if you come ask me a question, I'm not going to give you the answer. I'm going to actually talk you through it and ask you questions to help you decide, you know, what the right answer is from your perspective. But that's been very hard for me. I'm definitely uh, by nature controlling. I want, I'm a perfectionist. And so um, I'm harder on myself than I am on other people typically, but I can also be hard on other people. Um, and so letting go of that a little bit and realizing that, you know, mistakes are not the end of the world, but those are, learning opportunities has, has really helped, but making it a safe place for people to try and fail. It has really gotten us to the place where we are, where we have other leaders in the company who are able to run their divisions and their parts of, of this business that, uh, I really don't have to check in as much as I used to. And it's really more, uh, fun to have those conversations because it's less, you know, micromanaging and it's more big picture strategy. Um, and, you know, evaluating things that have happened that, you know, for the most part, there's positive things happening, but then there's also coaching opportunities when somebody misses the mark or makes a choice that, you know, given the opportunity to do it again, they would do it differently next time. And so those conversations are important, but it's always done out of a place of respect and, you know, safety. Like, hey, you're not going to get chewed out for making a mistake if you did it with good intentions. Right. In your NAM conversation or the NAM presentation you did, you talked about, uh, you know, like the dish, the difference between delegating a task versus like giving ownership of a, of a project or a challenge or, or an issue. Mm -hmm. Um, and that when you delegate a task, 
you know, the employee basically just becomes like a follower and they complete it and they come back for further assignments or they hit a barrier and don't complete it. But they're essentially not really like operating uh, in a position of authority with that task. They're like, all right, you've asked me to do this. I'm going to go try to do it. If I can, I can. If I can't, I can't. But they don't really like own it. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And I, uh, I stole that concept from Craig Rochelle, who's one of the, uh, podcast people that I listen to a lot. Um, he talks about the difference in delegating tasks and delegating authority. And, uh, that kind of opened up my mind. He's really great at just simplifying things. I tend to, uh, lose the forest for the trees. Sometimes, um, (laughs) I am very detail oriented and sometimes it's good for me to kind of pull back and see the big picture, but he's great at just, bringing clarity and focus to something that I make more complicated Mm -hmm. than it needs to be. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it's, it's a tough one because the tendency, especially early in a career and and management and like learning your way and finding your way when you're leading other people is to, you know, give people a list of stuff to do and maybe you kind of grow a little bit and you give them a job description. And so that gives a little bit more, at least the repetitive tasks they kind of know what they're supposed to do, but it's really, it comes down to decision-making and um, you know, I hope that the people we're hiring, we we're hiring them for more than just their ability to do things, but we're hiring them for their brain and their creativity and the ideas that they bring with them. Cause there's so much more value than I think we give our employees credit for. And um, you know, those three deadly sins, I'm trying to remember because that's been a, a minute since I did that talk, but I know one of them is pride mm-hmm. and uh, one of them is fear and one of them is guilt. There we go. Got yeah, you got um, it. But the the pride is one that, you know, uh, the leader feels like, hey, I'm the only one who can do this. Uh, and there's a lot of ego kind of wrapped up in that. And so there's a tendency and a reluctance to let other people do things because then maybe I'm not as important as I want to seem and I want to keep other people kind of down (laughs) so that I feel up. Right. Uh, But empowering other people really, it it grows the team, it grows the business and ultimately it makes everybody better because there are more people involved in making those big decisions and you end up um, in the long haul making better quality decisions over time. You know, those three deadly sins, I'm glad you kind of brought it back to that because uh, we, we really should talk about that. Uh, you know, it's probably not uncommon for people to feel a combination of those three. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would imagine for most of us, there's one or two that tend to ring the strongest. And you mentioned pride, you know, that feeling of you're the only person that can do it right. Uh, with guilt, it's, you know, that, that the control, the guilt control is where you feel bad making someone else do so- something that's unpleasant. And I certainly feel that quite a bit. Um, and then fear, the fear is that, you know, if I let go, then they're going to screw it up. You know, if I let them do it the way they want to do it, then they may mess it up. And so the fear and pride are probably pretty closely tied together. Uh, mm-hmm. which of those three ring true for you the most? You, I think you'd mentioned pride. Do you have another that is a close cousin? Yeah, I, I think for me, guilt is a big one. Um, I, I feel bad. Yeah. I feel bad asking people or telling people what to do. And, uh, you know, that's a, a part of leadership and that's a part of management and of owning a business is, is delegating and saying, Hey, here's what I need you to do. And, um, I don't know where that comes from, but that's something that I have definitely been working on 
And um, one of the antidotes for me and one of the practices is just being more direct with uh, requests, you know, like just saying it simply, I need you to do X and just getting it out because a lot of times I tend to beat around the bush and Hey, let me just kind of throw out some sort of passive statement and see if anybody bites and offers. And it's like, we don't, you know, we don't have time for that. And um, <laughs> we just need to, you know, that wastes a lot of emotional energy because everybody in the room knows what needs to be done. And they are looking to you as the leader to assign the task and to move on and to put the best person on that task. Um, so that's uh, been a growth opportunity for me is getting over that guilt and just kind of managing it. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 like I said, I relate to that one as well. I mean, that's mm-hmm. one there's times in our business that, you know, something requires a late night or a long travel or something like that. And I just tend to think like, uh, that's going to be pretty, pretty crappy. Like, you know what, I'll, I'll go do that. And I think some of that is because I know I get more flexibility than other people do. And so I think, you know, it's, and, and I think to some degree it's fine. I mean, Sometimes taking one for your team, uh, you know, they see that the boss is in the trenches and working hard and doing some unpleasant stuff. I think that can be good as well, but it can't, not if you're doing it because you're trying to keep control of it. If you're doing it to try to give people a break or let them know that you're committed, I think that's fine. But if it's part of your desire for, you know, to be a control freak, then it's going to definitely limit it, limit what you, what your team can do for sure. Yeah, well, absolutely. And I think, you know, giving people tasks, whether they're things that they really are eager to do or not, um, giving them more responsibility really empowers them to, you know, take more ownership in the company and feel like they're making a difference and, you know, that they're trusted. Like, hey, you know, Will trusts me because he is asking me to do this thing. And, um, you know, if it's done right and if you're explaining the why, and not just, Hey, go do this thing that nobody else wants to do. And you got stuck with it, but connecting it back to a bigger purpose or how it's going to make somebody's life better then um, people tend to be, you know, willing to, to take those things on and understanding of, Hey, this, you know, that shows that they trust me and that they think I can do this task. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, and talking about the why is such an important part of it as well. And I think, Sometimes as business leaders, it can be an easy thing for us to overlook. Um, mm-hmm. And but when we're dealing with staff, especially newer staff, you know, talking about why we're doing this task, why this thing's important, is a great way for us to help develop and bring our other staff into that inner inner circle of you know business authority and responsibility. You know, when they know the why, then they're part of that mission and not just a cog in a wheel. Absolutely. It's a, it's everything. I mean, if you want people to show up and clock in and clock out and go home and just have a job, then you can, you can forget about the why you don't need to worry about that. But if you want people to actually be passionate and inspired and engaged at work, then it's absolutely crucial and vital that there's a, a big deal made of the why, because that's, that's everything. Yeah. I think it's, you know, that delegation is something that every business owner or manager knows they need to do. They, they believe any competent manager or owner knows it's important, but uh, it's not really something any of us have really ever been trained on. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's reasonable for us to expect out of ourselves that when we begin delegating, that we will probably make mistakes as delegators, you know, and, yeah. and that we should be 
keeping an open mind and learning from our experience as the delegator uh, and to figure out like, okay, well, you know, I gave this person, you know, too much uh, detail and, and I basically just gave them a bunch of tasks. Uh, I didn't give them any authority or I left it way too vague and didn't give them enough clarity about what I was looking for. Um, you know, what the appropriate amount of autonomy is, what the appropriate amount of follow-up is. That's something that, you know, for those of us in a position to delegate are going to have to, you know, practice and kind of analyze our results to see if we get any better over time, what kind of our results are. But it's challenging, I think, to do that in the beginning for most of us, even if you're the kind of person that likes to give your work away, (laughs) you know, doing it the right way where it leads to successful outcomes generally takes practice, you know, and I think for many of us, we got into our positions of um, uh, authority, not necessarily from, you know, any kind of uh, formalized education or training program, you know, it's, it's something through hustle or whatever. And in your case, of course, you started a business and everything else, but a lot of what you learned in that business probably didn't come directly from a school or something like that. It's just from hard work and hustle and seeing your successes and failures along the way. And that's kind of training you as you go along. And sometimes it's difficult to see other people go through those same things. Yeah, it, you're exactly right. Um, and that's that's a lesson too for, for all of us is to give ourselves grace because um, we're prone to the same mistakes that you know everybody is. And, and just because we have maybe gone before or have been doing something longer um, doesn't mean that we're not going to mess up. And I think that's a huge part of being a good leader is letting your team in on it when you screw up, because it's a lot easier for the CEO to hide a mistake. You know, if it's something that nobody else is going to see because, um, you know, you have the ability to hide it or cover it up probably before anybody notices some of the time. Um, but it's really, really important to be transparent and to bring it to the team and, I mean, it's a regular thing for me to talk to at our executive team meetings like, hey, you know, I'm thinking of something that happened a couple months back where I had brought a profit and loss statement. We were walking through that with the team and I was celebrating like, man, look how great we're doing. And then after the the meeting, I realized that I had made an error and uh, missed something. And so the next week, actually the next day, I emailed everybody and said, hey, just want to let you all know a mistake I made. Um, You know, I, I missed this and here's how it affects what I reported yesterday. And uh, you know, just owning that shows other people, Hey, it's okay to, to fess up and it's okay to own your mistakes and be open with the team because that's a really big part of building trust. Um, which is a huge part of, you know, just organizational health in general. Yeah. Your third key to empower your team was choosing to trust. Tell me what that means. Yeah. So trust is uh, an interesting word and that's a, a great segue because just in that, the last thing I said, I was already thinking about Patrick Lencioni and he has a book that we went through as a team um, called the five dysfunctions of a team. It's a great and, book. Oh, so good. Um, should be required reading for anybody that has more than one person working for them. Yes. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, he talks about trust in that book and he defines it differently because what we think about when we hear the word trust is, typically like it's an assumption based on past experience of what future behavior is going to be like, Hey, this person did good last time. I trust that they're going to do good again in the future. And it's just, you know, I mean, it's every day is different. The same person is going to behave differently on any given day. People are unpredictable. And so if that's your working definition of trust, 
then you're going to be disappointed pretty frequently and you're going to lose trust in people because guess what? People are not perfect and they do make mistakes. So um, you're going to find yourself either just being constantly upset with frustrated, resentful of your team because they're you know letting you down uh, or you're going to be firing people over and over again and just have this kind of revolving door of people because you just can't trust anybody. Um, I actually used to work for somebody like this who has a small um, guitar shop here in town. And, um, you know, he's, he's an older guy. He's been in the business for a long, long time. And, you know, um, he, he had a, a part, a business partner who kind of left and started their own thing a long time ago. And that's been something that just stayed with him. And he has a hard time trusting anybody to, to, you know, be dependable or to be honest with him because of that. And so you, there's always a reason for it, but we tend to kind of build, trust around that framework versus what Lencioni says, which is, Hey, trust is more about understanding and believing that other people on our team have good motives and a good intent. And even if the outcome isn't what we were aiming at, they probably were doing what they thought was right in the moment. Yeah. And you know, the coaching conversations around that are very different than going into a coaching conversation where, you are bringing with you an assumption that somebody either is lazy or they don't care or they're stupid. You know, like those are the three things that I'm going to assume about you. Like, which one is it? Pick one, you know, here's why <laughs> versus like, Hey, why, why did you do that? Or why didn't you, you know, finish the cleaning checklist last night? And, you know, to hear the answer where it's, Oh man, I'm so sorry. Like I got caught up with a customer and by the time, you know, I, was, I checked them out after close and I locked up and I realized what time it was and I needed to get home because of X, Y, and Z. And it's like, okay. So I'm, I'm walking into that conversation with a trust that they probably had good intentions, even though the outcome wasn't what we would want. Um, so it's a different conversation. They don't feel attacked or judged or accused. Yeah, I think uh, recognizing that, you know, that you've hired good people that are wanting to do a good job and that we all are going to miss the mark from time to time. Uh, that's just a part of being human and being fair. Um, there's a difference when it comes down to, though, where you start to lose trust in someone, which can happen in a, in a team member. Yeah. Um, you know, you can have times where I've had times with that, certainly with even with our management team, where I start to lose confidence that they're going to accomplish the things they've set out and uh, the things that they've agreed to. And they, you start to lose that trust. And of course, for me, every time that happens, I start to look at myself and think, well, wait a minute, am I delivering what I've said that I'm going to deliver? Like, you know, am I doing the things that I've said I'm going to do? Because uh, if not, then certainly it's going to be hard for me to hold them accountable. And if I'm not following up on the things that I, you know, honoring my commitments, um, but any advice for what to do when you get yourself into that situation where you, you know you're you've lost that trust or faith or you're losing trust with uh, some of your team members? Yeah, I think the uh, the key because that definitely happens. Um, the key is just being open and honest about it with your with whoever the team member is to be direct with them because it's only fair uh, to let them know where they stand. Uh, and that's a challenge for me. It's a, a lot easier to talk about than to do. And, um, but those tough conversations where you are laying it out for somebody, um, in a lot of ways, that is the best thing you can do for them, even though it's uncomfortable in the moment because you're telling them, Hey, you're missing the mark or I'm losing trust. You know, I'm losing confidence in, you know, your ability to do this or your desire to do this or, 
um, whatever it may be, it's very important to have that conversation and not avoid it. My tendency is to avoid, avoid, avoid at all costs. Mm -hmm. And the truth is the sooner you can have that conversation, the more likely it is that that team member is going to be able to correct their course. And the longer you let it go on, whatever it is, if you don't um, identify and call it out and um, have the conversation, then the farther off track that person is going to be and the harder it is to kind of steer them back on. And um, there are a lot of people that have been able to, to make changes when they're approached and, and they understand like, Hey, this is something that needs to be fixed or, um, but, but I think saying those words really can light a fire under somebody or, and it can be that they come closer and they do what they need to do to be a part of the team or that they realize hey, you know what, being completely honest, I don't think this is the place for me and I'm going to self-select. I'm just going to say, hey, I'm out. Um, and we've had both of those things happen recently where, you know, some standards weren't being held and we had a conversation, two different people I'm thinking of, and one of them said, hey, you know what, I, I don't think I, I don't want to do this. And we said, okay, all right, well, it's been great. You know, we've enjoyed having you on the team. We totally respect your decision. Um, and, you know, we're going to part ways. And then, yeah. And that, that's a, honestly, that's a positive outcome for that kind of situation. I mean, you know, a lot of times we think about like, you know, building teams and stuff like that. We, we want everyone to be successful on the team always and to never leave. But sometimes a successful outcome with a team is someone leaving the team, you know, and for them to realize, you know what, this isn't for me or whatever. I mean, that, that's sometimes the outcome you're looking for. For everybody involved. Yes. 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 You know, for the employee who, you know, can go on and be successful and happy somewhere else. And for the team, because if you have somebody who's not a fit, um, which that phrase, you know, we could have a whole conversation about what does it mean to be a fit, but somebody who's not buying into your culture and who's not helping you build a company that's going to be all the things that you want it to build if they're countercultural or if they're running against the grain continuously in a non-productive manner, it's, you know, that's hurting that person and the team for, you know, for you to keep yeah. them around. And so it's better to part ways. You know, and uh, uh, Craig Rochelle, I think one of his more popular um, podcast or uh, YouTube leadership videos is strengthening a struggling team. Mm -hmm. And uh, he talks about, you know, when you get into kind of a negative cycle in your team, uh, that's usually a combination of wrong actions, no confrontation, people casting blame, and then there's negative assumptions made about each team member, which then creates more wrong actions, no confrontation, and it's just the cycle that continues. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that he said that I think is really fascinating, which is something that uh, I had never really considered, was that on you know gen, the general course for teams is for them to drift towards um uh like a, a toxicity or weakness so they don't ever drift towards being healthy on accident so <laughs> to create yeah. a healthy team is something that you that is done purposefully and is done uh uh, um, consistently over time. And as I listened to him talk about that, it made me think of like, I've, you know, if you have an aquarium or I've got a, a pool and a hot tub, you know, if I leave that hot tub just to sit and I don't maintain it over time, and it doesn't take very long, the water in it becomes toxic and unhealthy for, for you to, you know, to, uh, to be in. Um, and it doesn't take much to 
change it, but it does take a confrontation that's uh, pretty shocking, <laughs> yeah. pun intended. And, uh, <laughs> but if you leave it alone, it's going to become toxic. And I think that happens a lot in our, in our company cultures where, you know, maybe ownership tends to get a little hands off on it for whatever reason. And over time, it becomes toxic. And th- the way to break that cycle is the minute someone starts making a wrong action, he talks about having a productive confrontation about it and then people accepting their responsibility in it and then producing pro, uh, productive actions and positive assumptions and repeating that again. And, but I find with uh, so many people having that productive confrontation of when something goes wrong is such a challenge. And he has, you know, a couple of uh, another uh, video or podcast about that, just how to have a productive confrontation is totally worth people yeah. looking up if they you know need help with that. Cause it's, such the key is when something goes wrong, getting it back on track in a positive way is so mm-hmm. important. Absolutely. We're, uh, we're going through a book right now, several of us, and I think it's going to be our next kind of leadership and management team book study, but it's called uh, Conflict Without Casualties. And uh, it's great. It's, uh, the subtitle is something about um, compassionate accountability. And it's, there's just a bunch of just reframing how we think about conflict because the tendency is for that to be to kind of, it's gotten stuck with a negative connotation like conflict is bad and should be avoided. But the truth is conflict, the way they define it is just the difference between what I want and what I'm experiencing at any given moment. And that's neither good nor bad. That doesn't really have like a, a moral, you know, value to it. It's just a thing. Yeah. And so what we do with that energy is when, you know, we can either be, creative with that and come up with um, how can we solve this problem together and create a better outcome or uh, which is where most organizations go is how we're, we're going to take that energy and channel it into drama where we make those <laughs> negative assumptions and we talk about people behind their backs and we don't confront directly and we, yeah. or we just avoid the problem and have resentment internally. And so, um, yeah, that's a huge part of it. And it's so, like you said, the, the, the natural order of things is not for health. You know, if I'm not training for a marathon, I'm sitting on the couch eating potato chips and not exercising. You know, that's natural. <laughs> You've just Getting described up. my fitness program right there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a resistance training, right? Like I resist yeah. <laughs> going to the gym. That's it. That's it. Yeah. So, you know, it's natural. And you even talked about a a hot tub and you think about a hot tub over time. If you don't have the heat on, it just goes back to lukewarm and, you know, just stasis. And that's, that's typical. It's just stasis. Where do we all kind of settle in? And it's kind of the sum of everybody's individual drives and motivations and how they interact with each other. But if you can have, if you can bring all that stuff to the surface and have some great conversations and build some expectations about how we're going to interact with each other and what our values are and what our mission is, then we can get on the same page and we can put our individual deals aside for the sake of the team. And all of a sudden we can do things way more than we ever could if we were just kind of doing what we've always done without, you know, having those kinds of conversations. Yeah. Yeah, certainly creating that culture and creating that team, that is the number one job of any leader, you know, regardless of whatever your title is, like that is the number one job. Even if you have other responsibilities and roles in your business, whether it's accounting or sales or whatever, first and foremost, you've got to, to you know, define the culture and help to clarify it. And 
dealing with those positive confrontations when things aren't right, like that's just absolutely necessary. You know, it's necessary for every business to be able to, to give those verbal adjustments when they're needed. Hey, this isn't quite on track. This is what I'd like. Ah, perfect. You know, expecting everything to go right without any course adjustments, without any, um, you know, coaching along the way is just really naive and silly. We often yeah. think that, you know, we often think, well, I've set this goal. We set the goal together. Like it's our goal. Like it's, they should be hitting it. Like, no, 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 no. There's going to be still issues and yeah. you're still going to have to productively confront those issues uh, to help keep everyone on course. So Yeah. Can you imagine, uh, we'll go back to college football for a second, but Nick Saban just standing on the sidelines or let's imagine him sitting on the sidelines and not, saying anything during a game yeah <laughs> like, well, he had a game plan we all you know we agreed to this game plan but it's not got quite going as planned so i'm just gonna sit here or just stand in there and just yelling like yeah. <laughs> just being yeah. pissed and not actually like trying to help or coach his way through it exactly yeah, yeah. i mean <laughs> we practiced all week yeah y'all, y'all know how to play football right, right. <laughs> no, you know it's I mean, funny i've yeah. i've been binge watching uh some of the all or nothing stuff on Amazon prime and, and uh, they, they kind of show the behind the scenes of four different football teams during seasons. And it's just so funny because a lot of times with head coaches, you'll, you will see that you'll see them just, just screaming and yelling and cussing out their players. And like, just, you know, and I just sit here and after, you know, watching hours of that thinking, how productive can that be? These are like, the best of the best in terms of athletes and stuff like that. These guys know if they're screwing up, like they yeah. don't need you telling them they're screwing up. They need you to like, you know, get them back and like, you know, get their swagger back and uh, you know, showing them, Hey, here's, here's, I think where they're getting you or whatever. But so many times, and of course these are teams that usually don't end up having very good records. You just see this uh, constant barrage of negativity yeah, and that's the, there's a big difference between you know positive confrontation and negative confrontation, and the key is to have you know positive, honest confrontation for sure. So Absolutely. the final step was uh, to create shared accountability. So uh, before we talk about creating shared accountability, let's talk a little bit about, about the lack of accountability and and how that can hurt your team. Because I think a lot of times, whether it's that confrontation or whatever. There is a lot of a lack of accountability uh, in in people's businesses today. So what are some of the side effects for a lack of accountability? Yeah, uh, it's a a big one. It's, uh, I mean, ultimately, I'm going to jump to the end and say that this is all of the stuff that we're talking about um, is life or death for a business. And if I could say anything to a young business owner, somebody just starting, it's to understand like, this is life or death for your business. And if you are afraid to deal with conflict, if you're afraid to confront things that need to be confronted, if you're afraid to hold people accountable, um, you need to find some ways to overcome that fear or do something else, you know, go work for somebody else who is going to be willing to lead through that because it's, it's going to make or break your company. Um, it's not something that you can pretend isn't there and kind of shut in the closet somewhere and hope that it goes away. Uh, it's important. So for the accountability piece, I think what tends to happen is that standards start to slide. If people aren't made aware of mistakes that they're making, they can't correct them. And, you know, I'm, I'm coaching my son's little league, you know, coach pitch baseball team. And what kind of a coach would I be if I see a kid holding the bat 
backwards, you know, and, and, <laughs> and, and don't, you know, imagine that like I, he goes up to hit and I'm like, gosh, I don't want to say anything. I don't want to hurt his feelings. He really likes holding it that way, you know, and he's, he's holding it backwards and hitting it, you know, no, I've got to pick that bat up and say, Hey, listen, turn it around. This is the part that you want to hit the ball with. And you know, these kids have never played before a lot of them. And so it's my responsibility and I'm actually helping them out. And we have to look at coaching that way is that we're doing people a service by showing them a better way and by sharing the, uh, the knowledge that we have in a way that preserves the dignity of both people involved. You know, we don't want to be condescending or pandering or anything else like either way. Um, but to, to be able to, hold people accountable because otherwise the the standards start to slide customers notice uh team members notice everybody on the team notices if there's one person who gets away with stuff and then the whole team goes well why have i been showing up on time i didn't realize that Mm -hmm. it was an option to be five minutes late every time um so it just uh it's very infectious and i mean human behavior is that way for the better or worse and so all the great things we've described with culture you know that's people being good examples for each other, but they also can go the other way. Yeah. You had, uh, Patrick Lincioni has said that the best kind of accountability on a team is peer pressure. Can you describe a little bit about how we can improve the peer pressure accountability on our teams? Yeah. Uh, the trick is, you know, what typically happens in an organization is if somebody has a problem with somebody else, they go to the leader and they say, Hey, I've got a problem with so-and-so. And then the leader has to stop what they're doing. So a, they've been interrupted. Their productivity is, you know, their attention is being pulled away to something that's not, you know, the best use of their time to deal with interpersonal conflict. Now it's important and it needs to be dealt with, but if that's all you're doing, then you're, you're not being, you're not putting yourself in your best and highest use. So then you've got to go confront person B and then either tell them what person A said about them. And now it's gossip and it's not effective. Um, or try to pretend like it's anonymous. Hey, I noticed, or some, somebody told me, but I can't say who. And, you know, then that person B doesn't know who said it. And they're probably making up in their mind that it was maybe they're right. And they know it was person A and they're going to just be resentful of that. Or maybe they think it was person C and now they're wondering, gosh, who was it that told on me? And it's just so, so ineffective and inefficient. Mm-hmm. And what's better that Lencioni describes is that peer accountability where if somebody notices another team member who's not carrying their weight or who's making a mistake, they go directly to that team member and say, Hey, I care about you and value you and think that you're a capable person. I just noticed that, you know, this particular thing was due yesterday and I haven't seen it come through my email. Can you get that to me by the end of the day? Or, you know, just getting direct conversation a direct line of communication. I think that's something there are other people on our team who have helped me develop that and cultivate that on our culture. Um, because I tend to, I like talking about stuff with the person who's dealing with it. Um, like if somebody has a problem, I like talking to them about it. Uh, but the better thing is for me to say, Hey, you need to go talk to that other person about it because they need to know how you feel. And it typically does involve some sort of emotional content, like frustration or hurt or, belittled or whatever it is. And and a lot of times it's unintentional or whatever it is, but you've got to air those grievances and, and that kind of thing. But, you know, if we're talking about accountability, you want that to be related back to results and to goals and to business productivity. And so those conversations, 
you know, as much as possible, uh, keeping the emotion out of it and focusing on, Hey, you know, this was due last week, this didn't get done, or, you know, I noticed this was incorrect on that report or whatever it is, but having people go to each other directly has been, um, not only a time saver, but it builds more trust with the team because they don't feel like, Hey, there's one kind of dad here and we always have to go tell dad (laughs) (laughs) when my brother didn't, you know, hit me in the backseat or whatever it is. You don't want that kind of a environment. No, you don't. Well, we've spent a lot of time talking about team and, and company culture. And I think it's something that for all of us, even if we have a good culture, it's good to be reminded about it and it's good to be working on it because it's the difference between what's going to make us more successful and to hit and even exceed our goals versus not. So I think it's been great. At Springfield Music, We started using Merchant Cost Consulting earlier this year. These guys are former banking and credit card reps who go and negotiate your processing rates on your behalf. Now, like most of you, we're pretty aggressive about shopping our processing rate around, so I wasn't sure they'd be able to save us much money. But boy, was I wrong. On average, they're saving us about 600 bucks a month. The deal is we split it 50-50 with them for so many months, and after that, all the savings are ours to keep. Plus, they keep an eye on your fees during this time to make sure those freaking credit card processors don't find a way to jack up your rate again. They're good folks, and they do what they say they do. Actually, in our case, they underpromised and over-delivered. They estimated about 500 bucks a month in savings, and it's been closer to 600. When you contact Patrick at Merchant Cost Consulting, tell him that Donovan Bankhead sent you. This does two things. One, they will pay me a slight referral commission. But more importantly, two, you'll get 10% off of your first month's bill if you choose to go with them after their free analysis. Listen, I wouldn't recommend it to you if it wasn't worth it, It'll only take a few minutes of your time. They handle the rest. Contact Patrick McClellan. His email is patrick at merchantcostconsulting.com. P-A-T-R-I-C-K at merchantcostconsulting.com. I'll even give you a cell phone number, 508-733-7622. And remember, tell them that Donovan sent you. Let's go back to a couple of other uh, kind of closing questions here. Uh, just about your business in general. Tell me about a negative situation that you experienced in your business career that profoundly affected you or your business, but you wouldn't want to repeat it again. Okay. Hmm. So a negative thing that profoundly affected us, like in a negative way, something that hurt us and I would not want to do it again. Well, it's something negative uh-huh. and it profoundly affected you, but it could be that there was a, you know, a positive outcome or a lesson learned okay. that you're glad that you learned the lesson. Like you're mm-hmm. glad, Hey, I'm glad I know what I know now that yeah. I didn't know then, but I don't ever want to go through that again. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Well, can I, can this be a little bit, this will be a mixture of personal and business. Sure. No, I, well, and I think so, that's our, our lives often are right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've referenced twice now that, my ex-wife and I started this company together. So uh, there's always a story when you hear that, right? Like, okay, Mm -hmm. ex-wife. So, um, you know, we were young, uh, Sarah and I, when we got married and and we started this company and we had kids and we just had a lot going on. Uh, But I would say in in this, going back to any, I I tend not to give advice, but I'm going to just lean in and give a little bit of advice to anybody that needs to hear this, who's young and starting a company and a family at the same time. Um, and I'll I'll use a metaphor that somebody shared with me too late for it to help me. (laughs) So maybe this (laughs) will help somebody else. But 
in life, no matter what you're doing, there's always, you're juggling priorities. You're juggling tasks and commitments and all these different things. And um, in this metaphor, you've got a bunch of different balls that you're juggling. And some of these balls are rubber. And if you, uh, if you drop them, you know, they're going to bounce and, and you can go pick them up and they'll be fine. And, you know, you can keep going. And, and then there are other balls that you have that are, that are made of glass. And if you drop those balls, then they're going to shatter on the floor and, and you can't really put those back together. And if you think about juggling, if you, I don't know, I don't juggle a whole lot, but if you just picture somebody juggling, you don't really ever drop just one ball. If you drop a ball, you drop all of them. Mm-hmm. And so being overcommitted is kind of the visual representation of, Hey, we're juggling too many balls. And, um, in that metaphor, the rubber balls, those are, you know, the things in business, the things at work, those things, if you drop them for a minute or for a season, you can go pick them up later and you can pick them up and you can move on. And there may be a temporary decline, but things are going to be fine, you know, but your family, your marriage, your children, those relationships that are very important, your health, those are things that are the, the are represented by the glass balls. And so if you take your eye off the ball or if you overcommit and you have too many things going on and you drop your balls, then those are things that don't bounce back. And so that's something that I definitely learned the hard way. Um, my marriage definitely suffered because of my commitment to work and just being really uh, selfish in a lot of different ways. And going through the divorce and that whole process for me personally was you know, extremely painful, obviously. But I also experienced a whole lot of growth through that time in my life and learned a lot about myself. And um, so it's something that I don't uh, I don't ever want to do again. Absolutely. Um, But I do have a lot of gratitude for um, the things that I've learned in the ways that I've grown, you know, through things like counseling and uh, reading and just being in community with people who are going through the same thing. You know, it's a tough thing and I'm I'm glad that you, you shared it because I think it's something that a lot of business owners and managers go through. I know, you know, my wife and I have struggled with that quite a bit as well. Um, and there was always a lot of resentment on her end for it. And you know, I remember, I think it was our third marriage counselor that, you know, my workaholic nature was brought up again and, and um, I was being criticized from it. And so I finally just kind of stopped. I said, look, you know, it's not really that I'm a workaholic. Like I don't, I don't think I really love working, but what I'm afraid of is I I grew up really poor. I grew up in a a single parent household and there was never any money and bouncing around from home to home and school to school. And, and even later on couch to couch. And um, my fear has always ended up you know, that my fear has always been that I would end up in that same circumstance, you know, um, and never having enough and never having enough money. And I said, so I, I'm working really hard now, but I'm working really hard so that we have a secure future together. And at some point in our lives, all the work I'm doing now is going to change our lives. And when it does, I'm not going to sit there and like lord it over you that like, well, I did all this for you and you should be grateful. Like, but that's what I'm working on now. And so on the one hand, while I think it's important to remember like this idea of trying to have some balance and stuff like that, sometimes it's just setting that clarity with our partner of like, here's why I'm putting so much effort in and I'm here, I'm trying to do it for us. I know I can't, it can't be this way forever, but if this 
if we achieve this goal, if we achieve this dream, this can change our life, but I've got to be able to put the effort in. And my wife, to her credit, like she heard that, understood it, and since then has been much more supportive about the time that I put in. But at the same time, I recognize that, you know, now that she understands where I'm coming from, if she comes to me and says, hey, I need you to take the kid to get braces or I need, can you handle getting the dogs to the vet, which are both things that I've done in the last week (laughs) 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 that like I have to be, you know, yeah, okay. Yeah, I can do that. I can make time for that. And I think there's some give and take there. And I think a lot of folks in our situation have been through what you've been through and, um, and a lot of times we can harbor a lot of uh, guilt for it and a sense of failure. And, and, but you know, it's, it's part of this experience. And if we are willing to talk about it and share, we can help other people get through that, you know? And, um, yeah. and I love the analogy of the glass balls and the rubber balls, man. I hadn't heard that, but that's really wise. And of course the best bet to identify that is before you pick these goddamn balls up, right? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. if you're juggling them, you may not have time to, to like, to, you'll have to try to figure them out as each one passes through your hands. So like, wh- all right, which is this made of? Because you're totally yeah. right. There's some of those things that I think about, like I'm thinking of my, my business that like, okay, if, if we forgot this or like let this, you know, go by the wayside, you know, we'd recover from this wouldn't be a big problem. But if I don't, you know, maintain, you know, key customer relationships or, or um, you know, any, you know, any of those glass ball type things, that can be a problem. So, taking a minute, even while you're juggling of thinking about which, which of these are glass and which are not is really, really, really great advice. I'd never heard of that. Well, yeah. And I, I think that really helps you determine your priorities in terms of just like, you know, I have a weekly task list and I go through and I assign like A, B or C next to each one as a priority. And I start with A. And one of the questions I ask to determine that is what, what happens if I don't do this? you know, or what happens if I don't do it this week? Does anything happen? Because a lot of times things seem so important and so urgent, like, oh, I got to do this first. And then you stop and you go, what happens if I don't reply to that email right now? I think that person can wait, you know, and and it's not, it's not as important as you think. Um, Because, you know, we can't do everything. We have to say no to a lot of things. And being really clear on, on what is glass and what has to happen in priorities is, is huge. But the thing about relationships that I just thought of is it's like juggling with a partner um, <laughs> because you know, you've got yours, you've got, they've got theirs and either one of you could drop something and that it could all kind of come crashing down. But um, anyway, just to expand on that metaphor. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Okay. So finally, if you could send a message to yourself 10 years ago, what would you tell the younger you? Well, I mean, to tie back into what I just shared, I think it would be to understand that a marriage can't wait. And, you know, I thought that it could, you know, like, okay, well, we'll get there eventually. Like, let's just hustle now so that later we have this thing that we can enjoy together. Um, but understanding that it's more like um, a garden, like I've, I'm gardening now, I've got um, peppers growing in my backyard and it's about time to switch over to fall, fall crops. But anyway, you've got to give it attention. And if I'm not watering that garden and if I'm not making sure to pull the weeds when they grow up, and if I'm not keeping the birds and the squirrels out, there's a lot of things that have to go right that I'm responsible for in order for that, those plants to stay alive. And, um, you know, for me, 10 years ago, if I could go back, it would be absolutely like, 
make sure that the priorities are in the right order and that your family is, is number one. Cause now, you know, you talk about taking the dog and, um, and getting the braces and that kind of thing. Now that's built into the way that our family runs because we're co-parenting. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, if it falls on a Wednesday or a Thursday or on my weekend, I got to do it, you know, and I've got to, you know, do the laundry and clean the house and, uh, you know, go to the grocery store and cook and all that sort of thing. Um, so it's not optional. Uh, but I'm so grateful for the fact that I do get to spend time with my children and uh, have a good relationship with my ex-wife and their parent, you know, their mom. And so, uh, we're working through it and it's, it's fine. You know, it's not the way it was meant to be or anything, but, um, if I could give myself a message, I don't know that I would have listened at the time because I think I had <laughs> a lot of hubris and, and pride and I thought I had it all figured out and that I was doing everything right. But, um, I've learned a lot about just humility and, um, self-knowledge since then so sure okay and so now let's do the same thing let's let's take some advice and stick in a time capsule for us for yourself 10 years in the future what do you want to tell yourself 10 years from now uh let's see 10 years i'll be 46 um what do i want to tell myself at 46 gosh i think that by that time, it'll be really important to start thinking more about uh, what life looks like with my kids grown because they will be 19 and 17. <laughs> and so I think it'll be really important for me to be thinking about hobbies and, you know, relationships and, um, Gosh, I don't know. That's a tough question. I, I, it's easier to think backwards, right? Like, mm -hmm. I, what, what do I know now that I wish I had known then? But like, I don't know anything now that I, I there are things that I may forget over the next 10 years. And um, <laughs> there will definitely know. be things you forget over the next 10 years. <laughs> yes, so many. So what it's more about like, what do I want to remind myself in 10 years? I don't know, man, uh, play more music, like just actually enjoy the craft and um, and write and create, because I think that's something that, uh, gets squeezed out right now in my life. Yeah. I mean, I know that you're, you're on the spot trying to think of an answer for that question. Yeah. Uh, but dude, that's a good answer. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> honestly, like I think for any of us that are in this industry, our go-to should be, what do you need to do more of? Like, I don't know, man, probably freaking play some more music, you know, cause yeah. That's why we got into this. I, I've shared my story several times of, of a major burnout I went through and uh, uh, worked with a, a, a kind of famous or not, I mean, not famous, but a well-known coach in sort of like the, you know, podcasting circles. He's one of those guys that has a, you know, podcast and does business coaching and stuff. And when he was telling me like, all right, just kind of describe your average workday and like what you do. And I was at that point, like we were in the middle of trying to comply with all the ACA regulations, which I've, you know, I've, I've been always supportive, like feel like people need health insurance and stuff, but you know, it just was getting kind of difficult to comply with a lot of the regulations and insurance companies certainly weren't helping with any of that. And then, you know, trying to set financial goals and there's just all this stuff that I was dealing with. And when I would kind of finished telling him about my day, he was like, so is that why you got into this is you, to do, you know, uh, shop insurance around and do all this kind of stuff and handle all these HR type tasks. And I was like, Oh God, no, 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 no. And he was like, well, why'd you get into this? And I was like, 
man, I just loved the gear and I loved musicians and I love playing music. Like I just loved all that. And he's like, okay, um, how much of that are you doing now? I'm like, oh, none of it. I'm never around the gear. I never play. <laughs> and he's like, well, brother, I think we found your, <laughs> why yep. you're so burned out. Like, you know, and I was like, huh, okay, that makes, that makes sense, you know? Yeah. And I think for a lot of us, we got into music, not because like, I'm going to get into music so I can someday have a music business and like, no, no, man, we got into it because it was fun. We got into it because we like to play. We got into it because we like, we got to, you know, play with other creative and fun people. And that should always be a great fallback answer for any of us, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and as I think more about that question, a couple other things kind of come to mind. One of which is make sure that I'm, um, you know, empowering, continuing to like share what I've learned with other people, because I think, you know, I'm, I'm still, I consider myself very young and, you know, new to the industry. And, uh, if I continue, you know, if this business continues to grow and things are going well, I hope to continue learning. And, um, I think everybody has a responsibility on the other side of the hill to, uh, kind of pay it forward and, and share that with, whoever's kind of coming up behind them. And so I, I hope that, yeah, that would be another message to send to myself in the future is, Hey, 46 year old will like, who are you, who are you mentoring? Who are you sharing with? Who are you teaching? Well, um, I can let you into a secret there. Cause I just turned 45 is that you're still learning and you're still teaching. Like that yes. doesn't, I mean, that's why I started this podcast. Cause I was like, you know what? I need inspiration and I want, I want to learn what some other people are doing. And I, I want to be able to share some of what I've done, but I want to learn a lot. And, you know, I don't, I don't think that endeavor ever quits. And even if someone's young and starting out, they probably have something they can share to help others or inspire or motivate others. And those of us who've been in the trenches for decades certainly have a lot of war stories that we can share, but we also need to be inspired. So that, that feeling will never, ever, so I hope for you, it never stops. Because if you're going to be successful and achieve the things that you've set out for yourself, you'll have to maintain that feeling of wanting to share what you know at the same time you know, learning. It's that whole, um, you know, kind of beginner's mind, that whole concept of Shoshin, of the having that, you know, beginner's mind when you're approaching something of, you know, eager to share what you know, eager to try new things, never really holding on to any of it if it's not serving you. And I think that's really important. Yeah, absolutely. It's not like a, a Rubik's cube that you solve and then it's done. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Rubik's cube, but someone keeps changing the cube. Yeah. You know, and then yes. they, they take the stickers off and put them in other ways in other places. Sometimes they just throw the stickers away and <laughs> yep, absolutely. They're gone. They gone. <laughs> like who ate the stickers? God damn yeah. it. Someone ate the stickers. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a wrap for this episode. If you'd like help with your business, check out musicretailconsulting.com for articles, resources, and coaching and consulting services. Also, you can subscribe to this podcast so you're aware of future updates and rate and review while you're at it. Thanks for listening.